0: Welcome to the Times of Israel's daily briefing. Today is Saturday, February 3rd, day 120 of the war with Hamas. Amanda Borchel Dan here with our US Bureau Chief Jacob Magid. Hi Jacob, shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom Amanda. A new milestone was set this week as the conflict became Israel's longest open war since 1948's War of Independence. We'll hear how the U.S. and a small, quote, contact group may be planning for the day after in Gaza. The U.S. is now combating Israeli settler violence, and we'll also learn about a vote on Wednesday in the Chicago City Council to adopt a ceasefire resolution. All this and more when we're back.
1: You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise, and it helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So educate yourself, learn the history behind the headlines, find unpacking Israeli history, wherever you listen to your podcasts.
0: First, some headlines. Internal divisions among Hamas leaders are preventing the Palestinian terror group from backing a proposed hostage release deal that would include a pause to the fighting in the Gaza Strip, according to the Wall Street Journal. Regardless, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant asserted on Friday that a potential pause in the Israel-Hamas war in Gaza will not apply to the ongoing hostilities with Lebanon's Hezbollah terror group." Israel's long range aero defense system on Friday afternoon shot down a ballistic missile over the Red Sea fired by the Iran backed Houthis in Yemen. The Israel Air Force has airdropped a newspaper for residents of central Gaza called, quote, The Reality. The leaflet calls on Gazans to wake up and says that Hamas kills your children. The U.S. military launched an air assault on dozens of sites in Iraq and Syria used by Iranian-backed militias and the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps on Friday in the opening salvo of retaliation for the drone strike that killed three U.S. troops in Jordan last weekend. Last night's U.S. strikes in Iraq and Syria reportedly killed 39 people. Jacob, you were in Washington recently where you were told by a U.S. and senior Arab official about a plan in which the U.S. is advancing a, quote, contact group with the Middle East allies amid a coalescing around a united policy for managing the Gaza Strip after the Israel-Hamas war. Now, we've heard statements about how if Israel doesn't get a day-after plan together, then one will be imposed on the country.
2: Is this basically the result? I think that's what the countries are hoping. Um, They realize that they can't really wait on Israel much longer, that Netanyahu clearly is not interested due to his coalition math in talking about a day after um, and who will govern Gaza. So at least in the meantime, these countries are trying to maybe not impose, but at least plan so there's something in in the back burner that they have that they're able to take out and use if necessary. Um, This idea for a contact group was proposed by Antony Blinken, who was in the region last month, and he's going to be in the region tomorrow for four days. Um, and basically he got OK's from Jordan, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, and Turkey to basically form this group that each country will have their a senior official leading it. Um the countries are still deciding who will be the different representatives. I believe the US Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs, Barbara Leif. The UAE is using their UN ambassador Lana Nusiba, um, and each country will have a, some senior official. They'll talk, basically, li- largely virtual meetings. Sometimes um, higher level at the possibly at the ministerial role. Um, every so often, when there's a bigger decision to to make. Um, but basically, the idea is to start trying to figure out how Gaza reconstruction will look like, what reforming the PA will look like, um, and getting these countries on board with either supporting them financially, ba- possibly giving. Groups, um, whatever. There, there's still a lot of unclarity regarding what these countries will be doing. But the feeling is that they want to have a unified approach as opposed to having Blinken each time going to each country and having a, a separate discussion and then having to circle back um, and instead having a unified approach and hopefully moving forward in that direction.
0: So it sounds like each country is picking out somebody who's not on the highest rung, however. So it sounds like each country will still need to be having, you know, many conversations internally and then coming back
2: to this contact group. That's a great point. And I think one of the criticisms I heard from the senior Arab diplomat who leaked to me about this uh, this plan is that basically this is just another... Bureaucratic mess that the State Department is whipping up that really we feel like we're, there's not a lot of, it's more process oriented than results oriented. And the, U, the, basically this UAE official was like, when you have something to tell the, like you want us to do, we'll, we'll move forward with it. We don't want to have more time just discussing and meeting and planning. Um, we'd really like to see some results, but obviously it's harder to do that when, um, with Israel kind of basically dictating at the end of the day what, what is allowed in and out of Gaza.
0: Right. Israel is not involved. The Palestinian Authority is also not involved. So it would be the situation of having a plan
2: imposed or some kind of plan drawn up that could be just rejected out of hand. Right. Um, I think it's less likely that the PA will reject it because I think a lot of these countries are A, consulting with the PA and B, that these countries are also funding the PA so that the PA is not really in a position to be giving too many... Um, vetoes over what's going on, but obviously these countries have been grown very frustrated with Mahmoud Abbas over the years, and he has managed to kind of throw sticks in, into the wheels to, to kind of slow down plans that these countries would like to see move forward. But um, we're still, again, seeing the U.S. and Saudi Arabia planning to to talk about normalization um, even in the midst of war. Um, I think there's an expectation that the war would have to end to finally move forward with it, but these countries aren't planning to st- sit around and wait um, for approval from either the Israel or the the PA. They really want to see, they think that the, allowing the countries, these two sides to dictate the the process has led to the conflict that we've seen drag on for so many years. And a new approach needs to be taken, I guess, is the the feeling.
0: Blinken is meant to arrive
2: in the region tomorrow. What are the plans for this trip as far as you know? Yeah, um, a, a lot more discussions and, and talks about, I think. The day after, which are still kind of theoretical, as you can, as as this kind of shows. But basically, the top agenda item, I believe, is the hostage agreement that they're trying to negotiate. It's still not totally formed. There's not an understanding yet about how many Palestinian security prisoners are going to be released in exchange for the Israeli hostages, and the staging of the deal is still up in the air. But I think um, Blinken is hoping to push, um, obviously, Israel and then also. In these meetings with other leaders in the region, to who have influence over Hamas, to try to also get them closer to agreeing to a deal, because I think the U.S. sees the only way to get to the the far end goal of a Saudi normalization deal is first you got to stop the war. Um And the only way to stop the war is to get some sort of hostage deal. The feeling is that first you get the hostage deal, then with this two month pause or one month pause, whatever it might be, you'll have the momentum to maybe negotiate something longer. Um And once the war is over, then you can focus on Saudi normalization. And then if through Saudi normalization, you can do a two state solution. That's like the the grand, broad idea that the U.S. is very pie in, uh, pie in the sky, but that's the approach that they're trying to do. And it all starts with the hostage agreement. So I think that's what's going to be a lot of the focus of Blinken's trip.
0: We'll go to a short break. Do you appreciate
1: Times of Israel podcasts and our truly independent journalism reported directly from wartime Israel? Has the Times of Israel become important for your understanding of Israel and the Jewish world during this time of rising global anti-Semitism? If so, please join others like you who support our work by joining the Times of Israel community. For as little as $6 per month, you'll get an ad-free experience of our site and apps, exclusive TOI community content, and most importantly, you'll become partners of ours in ensuring media coverage of Israel that's professional, factual, and fair. For more information and to join, just go to timesofisrael.com join.
0: And we're back. On Thursday, U.S. President Joe Biden signed an executive order declaring a national emergency that allows him to implement new measures to combat settler violence, including sanctions that were concurrently announced against four Israeli extremists who have carried out acts of violence in the West Bank. It really
2: sounds to me that Biden took out the big guns here. What was the impetus to begin with? So this is an issue that the Biden administration has been pressing Israel on for since day one, really. Um, but but the frustration has been escalating. We saw President Biden himself talk about it publicly several times. Administration officials say that they've talked about it at, in every single, it's in all the readouts of meetings with different officials over the past couple of years. And it's something that they feel is not going to address. There's been alleged killings that haven't gone prosecuted, um, assaults, property damage that, that just continues. And the feeling is that the Israeli government is not taking this seriously enough. And even people in the government are that, that the U.S. feels are encouraging it. So, um, we saw. In Nov in November, this U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan sent a memo to the different uh, cabinets members, basically saying, "Look, you need to each of you draft up ideas for how your office can maybe address this phenomenon." Um, and then in Jan- in December, the next month, uh, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced these visa restrictions against uh, a group of extreme, violent extremists, both Israeli and Palestinian in the West Bank. Um, but this list was not publicized. This that was the type of sanction. It was like a just visa restriction. The idea was that if we don't publicize the names, then people will be more worried or will be more careful about getting involved in this kind of violence because they don't know whether or not they can get into the U.S. Um, that was the deterrent factor that they hoped. But obviously, they didn't think that was enough and that this, this next stage of these sanctions are much more intense in that they, A, they block off the individual's access to the entire U.S. financial system. So all their assets are frozen um, and they can't, have any sort of cooperation with US companies, but also that um, they also have a travel ban and that these travel bans um, and these sanctions are publicized and their names. There are four individuals who are sanctioned David Chai Khazdai, Eitan Tanjil, Shalom Zicherman, and Yinon Levy were the four um, involved in assaulting Palestinians. One led the deadly Hawar riot last year in the West Bank. Others assaulted Israeli activists. So all, all three of the four were convicted and one of them was on film that hasn't been convicted yet. So I guess it's also like the showing we don't really even completely trust the Israeli legal system is doing enough on the on these issues. So very far reaching move. It was also done, announced, um, as Biden is coming under increasing heat from this progressive base that is very upset about his support for Israel in the war against Hamas. And I guess there are critics or analysts who say that this was done at a time so he can show that he's also being tough on Israel on some things while he's still supporting Israel on the other hand. Um, and it came the day he was in Michigan, where there's this very large Arab population that be- is believed to maybe carry the swing in the state that could help Biden win, the, win or lose the election, and that maybe this is a, a, a deliverable that he can show them on the day he's in Michigan, even though he didn't really meet with Arab American um, constituents when he was there. Um, but definitely the timing is, you can tell, there's a lot of uh, domestic um, pressure that's part of the calculus here. But I think in terms of whether or not this is a big deal or a little deal or no deal, I think uh, if you take a look at the actual text of of the executive order, it's not just about individuals, but also companies and government, government officials who say can be involved in property destruction, seizure, or dispossession of land. And that last part about dispossession of land, um, land seizures are a common practice in the West Bank that the IDF is part of, but also government municipalities, settlement municipalities that are often signing off on these, on these, um, seizures or it are helping move them forward. And this could really be used, this executive order could theoretically be used as a tool to block off the entire settlement movement from the U.S. financial system, uh, if Biden chooses to take that route. Um, so if, we'll see if he does, but this definitely gives him the tool to do so. Um, I think there was some kind of initial scoffing at, at this, of this executive order because like what this, hilltop youth guy in the middle of uh, some outpost in Yitzhak cares about his assets in in New York and cares about flying to New Jersey. I don't think that's the case, but obviously there's a much broader um, umbrella of this policy that could have impact not just that one guy, but a larger movement um, if Biden chooses to take that route. On
0: Wednesday, the Chicago City Council narrowly adopted a resolution calling for ceasefire in Gaza, becoming the largest municipal body in the U.S. to pass such a measure. But it doesn't seem to have any teeth, while it is certainly symbolic.
2: So who brought the measure, first of all? Um, one of the co- council members who they go by aldermen or older people, um Rosanna Rodriguez Sanchez, um, very progressive uh, council member represents more of the the Latina community in Chicago. Um, but she was heavily, um, pushed by this massive Palestinian community in Chicago. Chicago actually has, in addition to being the Chicagoland area being the home to the fourth largest Jewish community in the U.S., it's the, also the home to the largest Palestinian, um, community in the U.S., um, and one of the largest Palestinian communities in the entire diaspora. So they obviously have a lot of, um, or they try to have a lot of influence on the, on the city council where there's obviously it's a democratic city, so they're more likely to um, be successful in having some sort of influence. But actually this this vote was a 23-23 tie in the city council and it was Democratic Mayor Brandon Johnson who broke the tie and pushed the measure through going against really the head of the party. Um, and I think in what it, I think advocates are saying is this message that they're trying to send to President Biden ahead of the Democratic National Convention that will be held in August in Chicago. Um, by this democratic powerhouse of a city. So we'll see um, whether, as you mentioned, there's not any, it's completely symbolic, it has no teeth and really it's modeled off of this UNGAR, the UN General Assembly Resolution that also was passed for the same purpose and also has not done anything Um, but it was just kind of fascinating to just be there for this day. Um, It was a four-hour debate that was incredibly heated with um, you had these pro-Palestinian activists there were hundreds that came Um, most of the, I don't know, apparently none of them had to go to work or school a lot of them were younger but uh, they're all wearing COVID masks and kafiyas and shouting down all the pro-Israel speakers. um, And you even saw when the only Jewish member of the city council, Deborah Silverstein was talking, people were me- shouting at her, calling her a liar when she talked about the October 7th atrocities. So there were a lot of Ten Seven deniers in this uh, auditorium. And even one before the hearing started, you could hear people shouting about Zionist money that she was being influenced by. And she was perpetrating war crimes. Um, so really some crazy anti-Semitic tropes that were being shouted. And, and I spoke with some of the Jewish, um, groups representatives who were at several several of them were at the the hearing and they were saying that we've seen this debate over the past few months over this resolution has seen a major uptick in anti-semitic attacks and also rhetoric throughout the city um and eventually during the hearing john uh, mayor johnson had to kick everyone out of the lowest gallery where a couple hundred had been trying to watch and kept interrupting Um, but just watching each of these different aldermen it was You had one, this guy, Byron Singcha-Lopez, who was in support of the resolution. He was passing out flyers that were trying to call into question the New York Times reporting about the sexual assault that was happening um, during the during the October 7th attacks. But he And he was claiming that the allegations are being presented as facts and that's not right. And while he's citing reporting from the Gray Zone, which is this far-left site that espouses conspiracy theories like super pro-Assad and, and Russia, a crazy. so he's using that site to, to justify um. Questions question in New York Times reporting, which was wild. Then you had this other guy, James Gardner, who gave this incredibly bizarre speech explaining why he was going to support the resolution because he recalled some experience he had backpacking in the Arab world and being driven by this hospitable farmer who told him, Alhamdulillah, and he was so touched by the guy saying, praise God, and that how there's a Jewish member uh, on the and the city council, but there's no Muslim members and we need to show the Muslim community that we, they have a voice here. And that's basically his logic for, um, supporting the resolution. But then you did have, obviously, it was 2323. There was one guy, Nicholas Spasada, who's wearing a U.S. Israel flag pin. And he said he's opposed the measure. And he said, look, when we are trying to what we say is not going to have any influence. It's not going to convince Netanyahu or Ismail Haniya, as he called him, to stop the war. And I kind of appreciated the fact that he had no idea the name of this Hamas uh, leader, Ismail Haniya, because he's a Chicago councilman and should have no reason to know who this person is. And it's just bizarre that these people are being asked to to weigh in on this this issue. Um, then Rosanna Rodriguez Sanchez, who supported the resolution and, and brought it to the table, um, spoke afterwards. She's like, yeah, we get that we don't have a lot of influence here, but the, we're trying to represent our constituencies, our constituents who who are co- all asking us to do this, and we have a right to, to to support what they're asking for. The last thing I'll just say is, I spoke with one more council member who requested to remain anonymous. Who basically said, "Look, I support a ceasefire right now. I I can't understand how." just the the mounting death toll and just destroying all of Gaza is going to be able to bring about a better solution, both for Israel and for Palestinians. Um. I But on the same time, I saw the IDF film and I recognize the footage from the October 7th. I recognize how horrible it is. I principally support a ceasefire, but I could not vote in favor of this resolution because these people who are pushing us to do so are, are totally have lo- lost their minds. I'm seeing this all the sorts of anti-Semitic, some anti-Semitic rhetoric that they're using. And I, I just couldn't get in, in, in bed with these people, um, even though I agree with basically what they're saying. So it was very interesting to see this up close over the, over the whole day on Wednesday. Um, and I think it's really telling about where a lot of people are in this issue.
0: You're talking about Chicago, which is in the Midwest, which one might think is more conservative than the cities on the coast, New York, LA, San Francisco, where we're hearing murmuring or or these resolutions are being presented, at least in New York State and in California, for sure. And it just sounds so performative, what you're talking about. And what really struck me in what you're saying is that the guy who was able to speak to you from his heart wanted to be anonymous. And the question is, is it because people who may have this kind of balanced thinking are being bullied, are being you know, threatened? Is that, is that what's happening here?
2: Yeah, that's absolutely what's happening. Um, I think Chicago is still, it's a its a major city urban area, so it's definitely a major democratic, uh, very blue um, part of the state, um, which is also a blue state in general, and gone blue for a long time. But yes, I think there's a ton of intimidation going on, and I, I think uh, even Deborah Silverstein, when I spoke to her afterwards, the, this Jewish council member who, who was leading the opposition to the resolution, she said that the mayor's office is actually leading some of this um, intimidation effort. She implied it, she didn't say it specifically, but very clearly was suggesting that and basically there were these four members of the council who didn't show up Um, and basically my understanding was that these four were probably going to probably not in support of the measure but Johnson I think or his people um, other also just in general the activists managed to I think push them away just at least if, if you're not going to help us in the measure, just don't block it. Um, and that's what they managed to convince these four council members to do um, by, by, by not voting at all, because it end, ended up being 23-23. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of fear. Um, and I, I think, in, depending on the city, there might be also con- pressure coming on from other ends. But definitely in this case, I think there's a lot of fear from a lot of these very, very vocal pro-Palestinian activists.
0: Really disturbing, Jacob. Thank you for bringing it so descriptively and I really felt like I was there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Times of Israel's daily briefing. Please check out another installment tomorrow. This episode was produced by The Podwaves. If you have any questions about this or any other episode, please drop us an email to podcast at timesofisrael.com Until tomorrow, shalom.